You're listening to a podcast of the Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Church in the city of Cork on the beautiful south coast of Ireland. We hope and pray that it will be a blessing to you. Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? Good on this late January day? Yes. Still optimistic? Still all full of energy and excitement and this kind of stuff? Yes, good, I'm glad to hear at least two people are. Everybody else is probably floundering and failing, I'm afraid. Idel, God bless you. You know, I want to look this morning at a story in the Bible that I personally cringe when I read it. I kind of twist in my chair when I read it because it just makes me that little bit uncomfortable. I'd say it actually makes me significantly uncomfortable. And I can't look at the whole story, but I just want to look at one chapter in the story, which is the opening chapter of this book in the Bible. Now, before I do that, I want to just say something that I think I've meant to say so many times when I get up to speak. And, you know, when Tom or I get up to speak or when a speaker gets up to speak, people in the room generally will fall into a couple of categories. One, for some people, when I'm speaking this morning, you'll say, yeah, that exactly fits my circumstances at the moment. And by the way, good morning again, Cafe Church. Said hello to you a while ago, but I'm saying hello again. Um, you know, some, some of you will go, yeah, that exactly fits my category. That's where I'm at at the moment. In that sense, it will be what is called a rhema word. It's a living word. It's God's word coming to life and applying to your exact situation today. Or you can fit yourself into it. For some others of you, you'll be listening to it and you'll go, well, you know, that doesn't really fit my situation at the moment. I'm just fine. Then to you, it's what they call a logos word, a word of instruction, or I hope a word of understanding, or a word that you can take and apply to the lives of others. Maybe you will meet someone and go, you know something, I heard something. Or maybe when, if the experience that we talk about this morning is not your current experience, maybe when it is your experience, you might have some backing or some backdrop of understanding for it. Does that make sense? Okay, so don't fall asleep. And if you must fall asleep, please don't snore. It disturbs the person next to you. I'm going to look this morning at the story of Job. Now, how many people here have heard of Job? Okay, most of you who read your Bible, it, it says jobs, but it's, it's Job is the, is the correct pronunciation for it. The story of a man named Job. And the, the story of the man named Job is not the most popular one that's read at weddings, you'd find. And it's not the one that we sing about at birthdays. We don't sing about Job's story. But Job's story is there, like uh, it's, it's glowing in the middle of the Old Testament, and it brings us up against a challenge. It sometimes takes the waves of our joy and smashes them against the rocks of reality because that's what's going to happen for all of us somewhere along the line. Everything that we think is optimistic and good and pure and going right at some stage in our lives is going to be tested, okay? Now, the thing about the story of Job is that when you read the first couple of verses of it, you think this is a guy with real faith. And why do you think that? Well, let's look at the first couple of verses of Job. I've put that slideshow up on, on Cafe Church below. If you want to have a look at it down in Cafe Church, it's up to yourselves if you want to follow the verses or else I will read them for you. So let's read God's word. It says, the start of Job is a fantastic story. It starts like this. It says, there was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was a blameless man, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters He owned 7,000 sheep, 
3,000 camels, 500 teams of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. He also had many servants. He was, in fact, the richest person in that entire area. Job, in Old Testament terms, was living the dream. He had it all. He had everything together. But even better than that, he wasn't only just rich, he was also righteous. He was a good man. He loved God. He honored God. And as you continue to read in Job's, Job chapter 1, you see just how righteous and how decent and how good Job is. He's really got it together. He's blessed in every way. He has 7,000 sheep. I mean, this makes some Australian sheep farmers look poor by comparison. He had 3,000 camels. 500 teams of oxen, 500 female donkeys. In, in a sense, the man was blessed beyond his wildest imagination. He had won the lottery of life. He had seven sons. Seven is such a significant number in the Bible. He had seven sons. No, he had only had three daughters, but what can you do? But he had seven sons and three daughters. He had ten children. He was a rich and a prosperous and a righteous and a decent man, a man of complete integrity. You see, very often we see somebody who's really rich, you kind of somehow suspect that they're a crook, that they somehow have managed to get this by, you know, cutting off somebody's nose or chopping out the ladder from underneath somebody else but when you see some but this one is this guy is singled out specifically because he is so so rich and then from winning the lottery he goes and he wins the anti-lottery something happens in job's life and the statement begins with the words one day we'll get to it in a second one day and when you see the words one day, sometimes written on a page, or somebody addressing you and they say to you, one day, you do realize that there is like a moment of awakening going to come. Uh, maybe a day of reckoning. You know when you say sometimes to people, well, one day you'll understand, or one day I'll get my revenge. Now, I know none of you would ever say that. Or you'd never even think it, I'm sure, because you're already decent. But, you know, this idea that there was one day, a moment in time, something just went horribly wrong. I'm going to jump a few verses, and we're going to look at Joe's day of winning the anti-lottery. It's about six verses, but it's well worth reading. Let's read it. One day... When Job's sons and daughters were feasting at his oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's house with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them when the Sabaeans, people who came from the south, raided us. They stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. And I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job is sitting there. This is not good news. It's not a great story. This servant comes in, says, okay, this is not great news, but you know, we still got a lot left. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with the news. The fire of God has fallen and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds, and I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Okay, bad day gets worse. While he was speaking, a third messenger arrived with the news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders from the north have stolen your camels and killed your servants. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. And while that man is speaking, Job is sitting there. You put yourself in Job's shoes. He's sitting there and he's absolutely gobsmacked. 
And his, he, he, he almost can't catch a breath with the events that are suddenly overtaking him. And he's, you know the way when you're suddenly in a situation, you begin to think, okay, how does this make sense? It's like one of those, you know those toys we used to have when we were kids, like these little nine scale yokes, you have to keep on moving the squares to make everything fit. You know that kind of game, I don't know what it's actually called, but I'd say Job is there and he's, he's trying to pull this one, trying to figure out that, and all that's going on. And then another servant arrives, I can imagine he's sitting there, and somebody says, there's another, there's another messenger coming. And the messenger comes running over the hill. And Job is sitting there and he's going, oh no, what can this be? While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and your daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. And suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed and your children are dead. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Job, your ten children, they're all gone. Your ten children, your seven sons whom you loved, whom you delighted in, your three daughters who you, who you danced on your knee, who, who, who you sang to sleep, whom you held when they were born. They're all gone, Job. They're all dead. In a breathless moment of a day, everything he owned and everything he valued was torn from him. And he was a righteous man. And he was a good man. A man of complete integrity. He was a man of faith. That's what he was. And then this happens to him. Job stood up. He tore his robes in grief. Then he shaved his head and he fell on the ground in worship. He shaved his head, signs of mourning. He shaved his head in mourning. He ripped his clothes, another symbol of mourning, that he's brokenhearted. It was tearing the outside clothes to represent the inside tearing. And he fell on the ground and he worshipped. He was a man of faith. Because I don't know if it was me and I faced that and somebody came with the news that my children were dead and all that I owned had been taken away or had been stolen or burned or gone. And when you look at Job's situation, it came at him from every side. The Sabean raiders came from the south. The Chaldeans came from the north. The fire came from above. And it says the wind came from all four sides and knocked the house. It came at him from every angle. Now, I know that your suffering can't compare with Job's. I know that anything I have ever suffered does not compare with Job. But you know what? I have those days or I have those weeks where it just comes at me from every side. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever felt like everything is going against you? And even when you pray, it just doesn't feel like your prayers are getting through or something. But Job was a man of faith. He was a good man. And of course, if I was Job, I would have asked a very simple question. Why me? Why is this happening to me when all, I, all that I've done and, and, and the way that I've honored God, why is this happening to me? I think you'd ask the same question. I think most of us would ask the same question. Why, why, why is this happening to me? 
Why, why, did, why did this come upon me? Because it all just seems so meaningless. It's just trying to make sense of it. How do you even compute losses on that scale in one day, in, in the space of an hour? How do you compute such high-level losses and, and not go, Lord, why me? Why did this happen to me? And you know, the thing is, you meet people all the time, and, and they, they, they're kind of, you know, the thing that I find is that when I talk to people, and they talk about the world and the suffering in the world, the continuous word they always use is that there's so much suffering, but, and it all seems so meaningless. And of course, it does seem meaningless if we don't understand the meaning. If we don't have the background, it just doesn't make any sense. Because what I've done is, I've gone from one part of Job's story at the start of, his, at the start of chapter 1, and I've jumped an entire section that actually explains the hidden meaning of what was going on in Job's life. The punchline in what was going on in Job's life is that God was allowing Job to be tested. In actual fact, God had picked out Job and said, how about, how about testing Job? I mean, he's a, man, he's a man who fears me and loves me and honors me. But Job didn't know that when these events were happening to him. Job had no sense of the background or of the meaning. And sometimes when we're in situations, we don't understand the meaning. But you know, just because we can't understand it doesn't mean that it doesn't have a meaning. Isn't that right? So if I was up here and I began to break into fluent Kazakh, can anybody here speak Kazakh? Nobody can speak Kazakh. Brilliant. So when, no, Paddy Dwyer, I know you can't speak Kazakh. That was a nice try. Um, <laughs> so if I was to break suddenly into fluent Kazakh and begin to speak to you, no, I, I'm not even going to try speaking Kazakh, and, um, and, and I began to speak Kazakh, you might be sitting there going, what is he on about? This is completely meaningless. This makes no sense. He's just... You probably get that bit. But if I just kept on going on in Kazakh, you go, shit, this doesn't make any sense. How can this make any sense? This, that, that, that man is just gibbering. It's meaningless. But if you spoke Kazakh, you'd realize that there's a message and that it makes sense. Let me give you another example. If you sit down with Frank Peters, Frank, I'm going to pick you out because I was thinking about you this morning. If you sit down with Frank Peters for a few minutes, Frank is a professor of physics, okay? So when you sit down with Frank and say, Frank, tell me about physics, in about three and a half seconds, you will be lost, I guarantee you. He'll begin to talk about photons and photonic spheres, spheres, I don't even know what I'm talking about, see I'm even using the wrong words. He would begin to talk about things that are so lofty and beyond you. Frank is the only man about whom I can honestly say his job actually is rocket science. It really is. He's a he knows physics inside and out. And you could be sitting there going, and I could come home and then I could say, did you meet Frank? I'd say, I did, I met Frank, it was lovely, a lovely cup of coffee. He said, what did he talk about? And I'd say, having a clue. He talked about physics. I just don't know what he was talking about. So I could be sitting there going, I haven't got a clue. This guy was talking about theorems and theories and light stars and pulses and photo photonic spheres. And I just haven't got a clue what he was on about. But because I haven't got a clue what he's on about doesn't mean that he's not making sense. Are you with me? Understanding does not mean, or sorry, forgive me, lacking meaning does not mean that there's not a meaning. Doesn't mean that there's an understanding in it. Are you with me? I really want to nail this point home because I think it's really, really important because people you meet will say it's so meaningless and they will even say sometimes, you know, I was reading the Bible at home and I didn't really get any meaning out of it. That's because you're not approaching it with the right heart and with the right mind. For instance, I like the game of rugby, okay? 
I make no apologies for it. I like rugby. I grew up near Musgrave Park where Munster have their Cork home, and I watched rugby when I was growing up. However, if you don't know anything about how many people know the game of rugby? This is, this is good, okay? Well, that was very enthusiastic down there, Sam. Okay, that's not very many people here know the game of rugby, which is grand. Because if, I, if you were to sit down to me and talk to me about rugby, see, David Hoy is very interested in all of a sudden. All right, Dave, you lifted your head up over your Bible. Two minutes ago, you were checking my... Two minutes ago, you were checking my doctrine. Now you're, you know, you know. So if I said to you, you know, I, I was watching the rugby last night. It was just absolutely brilliant, you see? Because we had the put in. And our, our hooker gave it to our flanker, who then offloaded to the inside center. He put up an up and under. The up and under fell to the full back, who took it in the air. And as he took it in the air, he offloaded and popped up to the fullback, who then, just as it was about to fall into the breadbasket, knocked it on. Now, if you don't know anything about rugby, I basically say I've basically been talking physics like Frank Peters to you. You haven't got a clue. But if you know rugby, you probably were able to follow the narrative perfectly reasonably. You go, rugby, what a load of rubbish. This game doesn't make any sense. It makes sense if you understand what's going on. You see, sometimes we talk about suffering, we think, oh, you know, suffering is so bad, and so on and so forth, but we quite often bring suffering on ourselves, don't we? This is January, I see all those people out running and, and, and dieting, and, you know, they're bringing suffering on themselves, it's <sighs> and they're willingly bringing suffering, they're not kind of going, you know, oh, suffering has come upon me, they're saying, I think I'd like to get up this morning, put on my running clothes, and go and suffer for a half an hour. <sighs> Or when you diet, if you diet, you know, if, you've, if, you've, if, if you've ever decided to diet, no, no, I'm not suggesting anybody needs to diet, but if you manage to take a diet and you say, you know, I want to lose a couple of kilograms or something like that, you deliberately suffer. But the suffering has meaning. It's to an end. There is a goal. There is a purpose in what you experience when you starve yourself to lose some weight or go out running for half an hour or for five miles or whatever it is that you want to go running five miles in your own personal flavor. But when you go, there is suffering. But you do it because there's an end goal in mind. And when things happen in our lives, when we look at this book of Job, we realize that God has an end goal in mind in our lives and in the lives of the people around us. There is a purpose to it. So we ask, why me? And yet, strangely enough, when good things happen to us, we don't tend to say, why me? Do we? Do you know, it's fantastic. I just got a promotion at work and, you know, it was brilliant. I got, an, I got a 10,000 euro raise and now I'm ruling over 500 employees. Lord, why me? No, we don't. When things go well, we don't tend to say, why me? Unless, of course, you're Johnny Logan and you want to win the Eurovision and then you write a song called Why Me? And that's another story. But um, we tend not to say, why me? And then Job, in his wisdom, delivers the naked truth. He delivers the naked truth. And this is what it says. He says, he shaved himself bald, he fell on the ground and he worshipped. And then he said this. Yeah, you are going to switch me. I did switch it off, didn't I, in my excitement? He said, I came naked from my mother's womb and I will be naked when I leave. I had nothing when I came and when I go, I'll have nothing with me when I go. There will be nothing else. So anybody here who has witnessed the joy of birth knows that a child comes into the world with nothing. It's not like getting a new blender with loads of different accessories on it. You don't kind of go, 
is the pram still in there? That's not how it works. We come absolutely naked. We come absolutely dependent. And that's our condition. We are utterly dependent. And Job just basically reaches the naked bit at the end of his life a little bit earlier than he expected. But you know, so much of the stuff that we get wound up about and concerned about and troubled about and so much of the stuff that you hear people out on the street protesting about and giving out about on the radio and talking to Joe on the whine line and all these other things that you hear, very often they're part of the naked will I leave department. Very often the major complaints are naked when I leave, it just, it will be gone from me. And he goes on to say this. He says, the Lord gave me what I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. <laughs> the Lord has given me all that I had and the Lord has taken it away. Praise the name of the Lord. That is faith. That is faith. That is real, substantial, solid, wearable, usable, cashable, sustainable faith. Because Job got an inside view on two things. He realized how naked he was when he came and how naked he'll be when he departs. Have you ever seen, have you ever seen a trailer behind a hearse? Never. Never seen one that brings all the stuff to the grave with you. Nothing goes with you. And then he discovered something else or he reveals something else. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. That everything he had was a gift. Everything he had had come to him as a gift. God opened his hand and freely gave to him. And then he was able to say, well, what God has freely given, he's able to freely take away. It's a gift. And the only response to a gift is gratitude. It's the only decent response to a gift. If you start repaying, somebody gives you a gift, and you say, well, I'm going to have to repay you, it's not a gift anymore. You undo it. He realized that everything was a gift. We sang a second ago, it's your breath in our lungs. It's God's breath in our lungs. C.S. Lewis says that, that, that man can neither, he can neither make nor retain one moment in time. It all comes to him as a pure gift. And the idea that he even owns his time is like lunacy, he says. You might as well think that the sun and the moon are serving you. It comes as a gift. And Job looked at his ten sons our seven sons and his three daughters and all his cattle and his sheep and his camels and his donkeys. And he said, lads, they were a gift. I didn't earn them. They were God's kindness and God's blessing to me. God has given and God has taken away. And in the midst of that disruption, while he's going through all of that experience, while he's going through all of that experience, Job is being brought back to the fundamental point, the fundamental place of life, the fundamental place that we all need to be in, which is a place of faith that says, you know, God knows what he's doing. And sometimes God has to get our attention. C.S. Lewis again said this. He said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. He's trying to wake up a deaf world with struggle and pain and suffering. Because when everything is going good, we tend to tune out of the frequency that God is on. Human beings are like that. I know I've read the book that was written over 1,500 years. I've read it. 
Human beings are like that. When everything is going well, they can tend to forget God and begin to think, yeah, I, you know, I, I did this. Well, it's my hard work. I mean, it's all my hard work that caused this to happen. And that's exactly what God warned against. And he said, if that happens, guys, I'm going to have to pull you back and remind you that what you've got is a gift. It's a blessing from above that God has poured this into your life freely, freely, freely. He gives into our lives and freely he pours in his grace. But to me, the most challenging verse of the whole chapter one is this verse. In all of this, Job did not sin by blaming God. In all of what happened to him, he didn't say, what are you doing? How could God do this to me? You see, what, what Job was dealing with here is, um, if you will, it's a paradox. There's a paradoxical truth at work here. See, Job was in a culture and, and amongst people who believed one of the fundamental spiritual laws of the universe, and that is that we will reap what we sow. Isn't that right? I mean, if you plant daffodils, you don't get wheat or, or blackberries. If you plant daffodils, you get daffodils. Oh, my daffodils have come up and I, I cut all the heads off them accidentally with the lawnmower again this year, so no flowers, only leaves. But um, with whatever you plant, that's what's going to grow up in your life. Whatever you put into the ground. And, and the people of this culture and the spiritual law undergirded. And it is a truthful, biblical law. We reap what we sow. We reap what we sow. But there is a paradoxical truth at work here. There is another truth at work here, and that is the one that explains, and I can't say it explains is the wrong word, but may go some of the way to understanding why Job experienced this. And that paradoxical truth is this. Ultimately, God owns and controls everything. That is the ultimate truth that underlines the whole universe. He controls the whole universe. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. They obey His commands. He is the one who is in control. And so Job, who could have said, hang on a second, I sowed loads and loads and loads of good stuff in my life. Why am I reaping these tough times? I mean, I was a righteous man. I mean, I've done my sacrifices. I mean, I, I sacrificed for my children, for heaven's sake, in case they did sins that I didn't know anything about. I mean, I gave to the poor. It says at the end of Job, it's also, he remembered the poor. He remembered the orphans. He remembered the widows. He was a good man. He did the right thing. And yet still this came upon him. Why? Because God is ultimately in control. The Bible does not contradict itself, but there are paradoxes of truth appearing. There are truths that can appear contradictory to other truths. And this is one of the paradoxes that I deal with and that you deal with in all of our lives. Sometimes, I hate to use the phrase, but bad things happen to good people. There you go. Sometimes really nice people. I mean, the old, do you remember the old, the old song? Only the good die young. Do you remember that rock song? Because there's some truth in it. People got a sense of, hang on a second, he was a good guy. Why is he after dying? What's after happened to him? Sometimes bad things happen to good people. And the book of Job is there to say, guys, before you think we have it all figured out and everything is going to just be perfect because you do all the right things, all the right things will happen to you. I wish that that were so. 
I wish that that were so. Because if, that, if the truth of it is that only that good things happen to good people, then you have an awful lot of explaining to do to the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of Christians who've died for their faith throughout the history of Christianity. Sometimes bad things happen, but at the end of the day, God is in control. And what's the most important thing is, and this is the punchline, how do we respond when bad things happen to us? How do we view God when things aren't working out the way that they were planned? What is our perception of God? Job's perception was that God had actually done no wrong. That's what it says at the end of Job, chapter 1, verse 22. He didn't blame God. He didn't accuse God of doing wrong. When Paul writes in the New Testament, he writes to the Christians in the New Testament. And he says to them, he says, lads, Romans chapter 8. I mean, most people love Romans chapter 8. We sang a verse from it actually a while ago. What should we say then in response to all these great things? Paul lists out these, all these fantastic things. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Who can be against us? It's a rhetorical question. No one can be against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? I'm going to ask the question and you're going to give the response, okay? If God is for us, him who did not spare his son but offered him up for us all, will he not be with Jesus Christ? Give us all things, he goes on to say. It's a fantastic passage. But it kind of comes off the rails a little bit towards the end because Paul gets down and he addresses something that's really important and really gritty. Because towards the end of that chapter, one of the best and most interesting chapters in the New Testament, he says there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah! Nobody's going to condemn God's people. And if God is for him, nobody can be against him. He says, and who is going to bring an accusation or bring a charge against God's elect people? No one. Who's going to do it? He says, no one's going to do it because they're mine. They're owned. They're God's property, God's possession. They're in Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say this. Oh, love of Michael. I've turned it off again, have I? Would you put up the next slide for me, please, Michael? Ah, he goes on to say this. Yeah, it's not going to come up for me, is it? It is, there it is. He says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or are hungry or destitute or we're in danger or if we're threatened with death? Does it mean he no longer loves us? Does it mean that that's the end of the line? If, he no, if we suffer these things? Does it mean that God has changed his mind about us when bad things happen? Look at the word he uses. He uses the word trouble or calamity. If a calamity happens, does it mean that God's attitude of love towards us hasn't changed? And when we think about love, you see, we can kind of go, well, does that mean God's feelings and affections towards us are different? And yes, it does contain that. But really, what he's referring to there is God's active love of provision and gifting in our lives. Does anything change if we go through difficult times? Now, you, may, you might be right now in a situation where you're in a difficult situation. I want to tell you this. Nothing will separate you from God's love and God's purpose. Nothing will separate you. It just won't happen. Does it mean? I, love, I just love the way he puts it. Does it mean he doesn't love us anymore? Do you know the way like... Do you know the way like if you're, if you're a parent and you have kids and, and, and you kind of say no to them for whatever reason, you know. Dad, can I go to the... 
I don't know. Can I go for a sleepover? Can I go to the cinema? Can I, like, can I get pizza? Can I, you know, can I go to my buddies for the night and you say no? And it feels like you, you can, they think, God, he doesn't love me anymore. He's after changing his mind about me. Nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. What does maybe the worship team would come up? We're going we're to bring it to a close here in a second. But what does Paul say? Let me tell you what he says. He continues on to say this. He says, no. Let, let me take it from the top. He says, can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or are persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? No, he goes on to say, in spite of all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ Jesus who loved us. Would anyone say amen? amen. For I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries for tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from the love of God. Amen, lads. No, no power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. That's faith. And I don't know what you're at. And maybe you're going, you know, my life is just fine at the moment. And I say to you, praise God. I am delighted for you. I really am. And no, my situation is going okay at the moment too. That's pretty good. But you know what? I know this. I know this, that things do change. I've had my Job moments in my life. I can tell you that. I've had plenty of moments where I wondered, what on earth is going on in my life? Why are these things happening to me? I've asked that question and I suspect because I'm a pretty average person that you may have asked that question somewhere along the line. Well, I want to declare to you this morning that regardless of the circumstances that may be going on in your lives and listen to me, maybe in the lives of people you know, people you work with, people that you study with, people that you serve alongside in whatever capacity, people that you live with, I don't know. But there will be questions and you'll be able to say, you know what, here's the bottom line. When we surrender to God, God is in control. God is in control. When we surrender ourselves into God's hands and we trust Him completely, He is in control and He does His work in our lives. Will you stand with me? We're going to pray. First though, we're going to sing a verse and a chorus from the song, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. You know the one that was written by Matt Redman? We kind of introduced it in Grace back in the mid-2000s. We're going to sing that chorus and I ask you to take the words into your heart and then we're going to pray. Let's sing. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful Where streams of abundance flow Blessed be your name Blessed be your name And blessed be your name When I'm such that is plentiful where your streams of abundance flow blessed be your name every blessing every blessing you pour out I'll turn back to pray 
close our eyes for a second. Let's pray. If you're here this morning and you're, you're struggling, you've got what would broadly be described as a suffering in your life. You're struggling with an issue and you're trying to figure out what's going on. You can relate and you can connect to this because you're going, yeah, you know, I'm struggling, I'm suffering. I've got a trial that I can't readily explain and I don't know what's going on. And you want to say, Lord, help me make sense of what's going on in my life right now, though I can't make sense of it myself. Help me to make sense of it, Lord Jesus. If you want to pray that prayer this morning, will you raise your hand? Lord, help me make sense of this trial and this situation. See your hands. Let's pray. Father God, I pray for all of those this morning, Lord, who are in the midst of struggling or suffering or trial, Lord. I pray, Lord. I pray by your Holy Spirit, Lord, that they would make sense of what's going on. Lord, I pray that they would understand your purpose and your plan, Lord. And even if they can't, Lord, I pray, Lord, I pray that they would still have the faith to say to you, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I want to pray for the rest of us, if that's okay. Because this may not be your struggle today, but I can assure you it will be your struggle on some day in your life. God will always be good, and He is good all of the time. But there are times when we need to make sense of what's going on in our lives. Can I just, we're going to pray. Let's pray that God would, I pray that we would never lose sight of God in the midst of whatever we experience. We'd never miss, we'd never lose sight of God in the midst of the trial. That we'd never lose sight of God in the midst of the struggle. That we'd never lose sight of God within the midst of the trouble or the calamity or the persecution or the hunger. Let's pray that we would never lose sight of Him and have Him always in our lives. If you're willing to pray that prayer, would you raise your hands with me? Let's lift our hands in prayer before God. Father in heaven, I pray. Lord, only you know the future. We don't know the future. We don't know what's coming upon us at any given moment, Lord, but we do know this. God owns the future. Lord, you are in control of that future, Lord. Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning that regardless of what difficulty comes into our lives, Lord, whether it is the attack of the enemy, Lord, whether it is circumstances or sickness or situations, Lord, whether it is um, need, financial need, Lord, whether it is relationship breakdown or breakup, Lord, I pray. Lord, that we would never lose sight of you. Lord, I pray we would never lose sight of you, Lord. I pray that we would always be able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Would anyone say amen? Let's not lose sight of it. Let's sing on. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. Let's worship God. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. And when the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. 
blessed be your name. You give and take. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Lord, blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's close in prayer. Can I invite you one more time to lift our hands? If you're comfortable, you don't have to. If you're a visitor here, it's okay. You don't have to. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, as we go into the week that is to come, I pray, Lord, we would discern your presence in every situation, Lord. Lord, whether we face the best week of our lives or the toughest mile of our days, Lord God, I pray that when in all of this week we would sense your presence, we would sense your purpose, we would sense your plan, and above all else, Lord, we would sense your love, your incredible, overflowing, lavishing love being poured out upon our lives. Go with us and go before us, we pray, in Jesus' name. And God's people said, Amen. 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 God bless and keep you, brothers and sisters. Tea and coffee is being served upstairs. We've got growth track at 2 o'clock. Don't forget that. And we're back here on Tuesday night for Night Church at 7.30 p.m. God bless you.